I'm Cody Calmers, and this is Against Habit. My episode last week featured a conversation with author David McCraney about what it takes to change someone's mind on a big, important topic like religion or abortion or guns. And the overriding conclusion of McRaney's research on the topic was that facts alone don't change minds. From emotions and feelings to social dynamics, beliefs are embedded in a complex web of factors that rationality alone can do little to unwind. But that doesn't mean we can't try. My guest this week is a two-time world champion of debate. He's coached debate for Harvard as well as the Australian national team. He's currently a law student at Harvard. His name is Bo Seo. His new book is called Good Arguments. In the book, Bo tells the story of his own trajectory through the debate world and what he's learned about the structure of successful debate along the way. And I wanted to talk to Bo about this because debate is a kind of idealized battle of beliefs. One side gives their perspective, the other side makes the opposing case. Whichever side's argument is more convincing is declared the winner. And it's this kind of idealized form of debate that many of us, Bo included, envision as this core principle of a working democracy. You let two opposing sides each present the best version of their case, then the rest of us get to decide which one to believe. But it feels less and less like these kind of good arguments are happening in our society. Sometimes they don't even feel possible anymore. So in this conversation, I wanted to explore the mechanisms of formal debate. Why does competitive debate work the way it does? What happens if you change the formula? What might we be overlooking by trying to overgeneralize the competitive debate format to the rest of society? And is debate the right model to use if our ultimate goal is changing minds? These questions are all especially worth asking to contrast with the decidedly non-debate models of mind-changing David McCraney and I discussed last week. Bo's book, Good Arguments, is out now. You can find him on Twitter at HelloBoseo or on his website, HelloBoseo.com. If you enjoy this episode and want to stay up to date with the rest of my work, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at AgainstHabit.com. Thanks for listening. Here is Bo Seo. So I guess I want to start off by noting something that I really loved about your book, which is that one of its premises is a kind of skepticism about agreeableness and a deep respect for disagreement. So you write that, quote, there is a paucity about an agreeable life. Sustaining one requires too many compromises and self-betrayals. And in society more broadly, uh, we tend to think of disagreement as a bad thing. For example, if I disagree with someone politically, that makes it tough to be friends. So can you tell me a bit about what disagreement means to you and what you've come to understand about it through debate? The roots of my thinking about disagreement, they're grounded in biography. So I moved to Australia as a kid from South Korea, and I didn't speak English. And I found real-life conversation very difficult to adjust to. And I wouldn't have had the language at the time, but I also sensed what a lot of immigrants do, what a lot of marginal people do, which is that 
their welcomeness in a place is conditional on not rocking the boat or speaking out too much. And the combination of those things made me resolve to be very agreeable, which is just to smile and nod and mostly keep my thoughts to myself. And I actually think I can spot that particular kind of smile and that slightly distant look. And I see it all around me of people who have chosen out of self-protection sometimes to remove oneself from the world or to stand from it at a certain kind of distance. And what I realized then was that when you do that, you make a whole lot of compromises, um, as you noted in that, in that passage. You can't give expression to, you know, if you agree with half the things, disagree with half the things, you can't give expression to half of how you feel about things. And one of the unexpected joys of my involvement in debate um, was that I saw that by taking the plunge, by saying, I actually disagree with that. Here's what I think instead. What do you think about what I just said? You invite the other side to a much richer kind of conversation. And, you know, just writing this book about disagreement makes me think I've now thought about all the different variations of this word, right? So there's community based around agreement, which is slightly different from a community built around agreeableness. And I think both are lesser in a community that embraces its disagreements but tries to do it in a good way. The community built around agreement tends to be kind of puritanical and self-policing and, and wanting to be one thing and homogenous. And the one about agreeableness is just a bit chaste, a little bit arm's length, um, a, bit, a bit bland. And uh, a community that embraces its differences and disagreements, I don't think is like that. Yeah, I think this is a really important concept. I'm really fascinated with the idea of agreeableness. And so, you know, my background is as a psychologist, but not necessarily as a personality psychologist. But you know, in psychology, agreeableness is one of the big five personality traits, along with conscientiousness, openness, neuroticism, and extroversion. And all of those kind of like traits have a valence to them. So agreeableness like sounds like a good thing. And in general, it is considered to be more positive than its opposite, which is disagreeableness. But I guess in my view, agreeableness and people-pleasing are the kind of traits where you start bumping into the limits of their upsides really quickly. It's definitely, as you're describing, a mechanism for conformity, acting in a way that makes us less like ourselves and, and more like the, the lowest common denominator of the people around us. And so I think for most people, the natural inclination is to err on the side of conformity or agreeableness, like you were saying, especially as a marginalized individual, as an immigrant, but I think probably more generally for, for most of us. Uh, and, you know, so it's kind of natural to stay away from, from actions you think will make everyone upset. And so I think there is a trick here, and this is one of the things that you're touching on. Uh, the debate creates a space for this, 
the trick is to infuse more disagreeableness into one's life and to try and get a little bit more purchase on your own individuality. I love that. Um, and I'd want to hear more about it and learn about it. But it, it makes me think two things. So one is what you say, which is less is fixed than we often assume. So uh, if we say disagreements kind of go badly now, if that's one of our kind of inbuilt assumptions about how we should conduct ourselves in the world, I want to say that's only true in a world in which many of us have lost the skills of good disagreement or don't have models that, that we can emulate. And so I think the meaning of what agreeableness and what disagreeableness is and what it does in the world depends on the world. And, and I think that is less fixed than we assume. And I think just a second, I don't know how this squares your, with, you, with your understanding of the psychology here, Cody, but um, one of my strong beliefs is that, as you say, actually, we are not just marginal people or we're not. We all contain impulses that make us feel marginal at different moments, right? So anybody can feel marginal based on who they're with, based on the situation that they're in. And in the same way, um, you know, I, I, I'm obviously on the podcast as a debater, as an advocate for debate, but I'm a pretty, pretty agreeable person, I think, by nature. Um, and so I don't think it's a kind of a categorical thing of um, with any of these tendencies that we're describing. I think people contain all of them um, as multitudes and and. And the part that I see as changeable is the context that bring different aspects of people's character to the fore. And, um, and, and, and in as much as we have agency over this, which parts of us um, we choose to foreground. I very much like this idea of, of good disagreement and with the core of that kind of being that it brings out individuality and gets you closer to expressing, you know, your something that resembles your legitimate internal feelings. And it also sharpens the internal feelings and positions of those around you because they actually have to bump up against something and not just sort of go along with the same sort of thing. And, you know, this actually reminds me of um, a couple months ago, I re-listened to a podcast um, that was, for whatever reason, stuck in my mind by Malcolm Gladwell, which was his take on 12 rules for living. And he gave just one rule for living. And and it the one rule was called pull the goalie. And it was this argument that he made about disagreeableness as his core rule for living. And the, the sort of setup is that, so you have hockey, and one of the things that like the end of the hockey game, if you are down by a couple points, you can sub off your goalie in the middle of, of the action and put on an extra outfield player, giving you a marginally higher probability of scoring, getting back in the game, but also a much larger probability of, you know, having, you know, the goals go against you. And his whole thing is that if you look at the math of this, the uh, time at which you should pull your goalie is way sooner than is conventionally done in hockey. And the only reason it's conventionally done that way is 
to be agreeable. And so life presents with us with all sorts of opportunities like this where we can go against the grain in a way that's defensible, constructive, and is like probabilistically going to result in a better outcome for our side and our interests. And because agreeableness is kind of our natural sort of frictionless uh, default, uh, we opt for that instead. And I think that definitely goes a long way toward describing why I feel disagreeableness is such a useful and uh, often difficult to come by quantity in our lives. Yeah, I like that. And innovation often feels disagreeable in that way. And I do think the skill set of it's a it's a balance, isn't it? Because you want to be pushing forward, but you also want to be with the society, right? And you want to bring people along. And I think for that, you do need some of the tenets of good argument because no use in being just you know a purely a crank who just sort of has his or her arms folded at in the corner of every party, right? You, I think you want to bring people along and. And that requires the sense you're engaging them in good faith. The other way in which I would just add to that is, um, and maybe complicated a little bit, is I do think a lot of innovation is disagreeable and, and cutting against the grain in that way can be productive. But the way in which it differs, my view of it differs slightly from the Gladwell example we just gave is um, in debate, it's not an instance of one person just having a perspective and then like enacting it in a disagreeable way. It's usually a kind of a clash and a back and forth. So I put forward something, you disagree with that. And then now I have to come up with something that responds to your disagreement. And so there's a kind of a, um, like a mutual development or evolution in the thinking and so um for sure there are moments where you're pushing for forward through some sudden burst of insight that you have to have the courage of your convictions to stick by and to convince people of but often the kind of evolution that i see through disagreement is um a little bit less it's not unilateral it's not one one-sided it's a kind of a dialogue um and it's two people pushing forward together um sometimes in unexpected ways yeah i think that's a really good point the active component of of disagreement okay so i definitely want to get into the details of the mechanisms of formal debate uh, which is one of the structures around which your book is based. Uh, but before we do that, I kind of want to put another thing at the beginning here, just sort of pin this up front, which is a statement that you make that I, that I also really like, which is that, quote, nations are at their best evolving arguments. And that's a concept that I like a lot, that America, for example, works best when there's a healthy push and pull between right and left, between progress and tradition. And in that ideal case, this creates a certain kind of balance as well as a, a mechanism for one side sharpening the ideas of the other by having to undergo this kind of significant process of scrutiny. So we haven't gotten into this specific elements and structure of formal debate yet, but I'm kind of curious to know upfront whether you have 
a kind of overarching vision for how something like debate would play out in society more broadly? Yeah, I love that question. And I've been reflecting on it because on book tour, I, I just did a, an event with the Philadelphia Library. And I remember coming here as a college student um, when I was an undergrad at Harvard and visiting Philly. And this place that's kind of known as the birthplace of the nation, Independence Hall, is not a battlefield, is not the shrine of, of some monarch or you know a shrine to a deity. It's a debating chamber, essentially. And I think this is a point that's generalizable to a lot of liberal democracies is at its best, the partisan system works as a kind of an ongoing contest between different visions of what a country can and should be. And it does happen that in many instances, you can't just build coalitions off ascriptive characteristics like race or sex or, or, you know, or other kinds of identity markers. You have to have a kind of an ideological program that brings people on board. So both of those sides, both sides of that matter to me a lot. One is that the ideas are important. They need to cut across lots of different segments of society and, and garner some amount of support. And the second is that it's an ongoing contest. So you can't have, it's not a, you know, you play once and, and you're in power forever. It's sometimes you're going to win, other times you're going to lose. But we want to structure our political system in such a way that the losers are still being heard to some extent. And we're playing the game in such a way that allows us to keep playing above anything else. And so um, democracy is not only debate. Um, but I do think debate is a big component of it and it, and it, and it brings out um, some important elements of it. I want to add one of your own points to something that, to, to what you just said there. And it's something you said at the end of the book when you describe how one of your friends, a kind of Silicon Valley tech bro sort of guy, surely very <laughs> successful, uh, he asks you this question, how does debate scale? And the answer that you come to is that it doesn't. And I'm actually really sympathetic to this answer uh, because I think the idea of scalability, the idea that the downstream effect of an action is a nonlinear function of its input, a, a small input and a big output, is really appealing from a, a business perspective. But it's a lot less robust when we're thinking about individuals. So scalable effects tend to aggregate a lot of small effects across a big group of individuals. And to say that only things that are scalable are worth doing is to admit that there's really no way to have any sort of significant impact on an individual relationship. So for one thing, the concept of a community is basically impossible if the only processes we value are ones at scale. Um, and personally, and I guess this counts as an aside, 
This is one reason why I think big tech proliferates in the coastal metropolises rather than um, you know in, in the U.S. heartland, the rural areas where there's a strong sense of value of a particular community. But but anyway, as you, as you're thinking on this question of how debate scales evolved at all since you wrote that conclusion and while you've been on book tour? It's a really it's a really rich set of comments. Um, I'm not sure it has evolved that much, to be honest, but what I think about it is, I love that word particular, and you said it in the context of community, but the basic unit of debate is the particular interaction and the particular encounter between two sides who disagree. And uh, I, I think I quite agree with, with how you framed it. And I think when you focus on scalability, it tends to tip the balance towards institutions. Um, and you know what kind of scalable political action looks like mass, mass targeting um, uh, on social media and ad, and ad buys. Whereas I think we know we're stronger, we're richer, we're more faithful to the, to the genuine diversity of countries like this one when we think about individuals as particulars um, and our communities as particular and our democracy as, in some ways, the sum of the particular interactions that people have day to day, in addition to what our governments and institutions and businesses do. I think the, the, it's more unruly in some ways, but it, is, it, it captures, I think, more of us and it captures the best of us when we start thinking about individuals as individuals, communities as communities, rather than something that can be bunched up um, in an effort to scale. Okay, so speaking of the particular, Let's get into the particulars of the elements of formal debate. So I'm not a debater. Um, so this is kind of, you know, uh, obviously you're a world champion. Uh, so this is definitely, you know, your, your area of, of expertise here. And I'm interested to sort of get into some of the topics that you use to explore larger concepts in the context of, of this formal debate environment. Um, and so let me just sketch out the basic setup as I understand it, uh, and you can sort of correct and, and add to that, and, and we can go from there. But um, so the kind of debate that, that, that you're a champion in is, so you start out as two four-person teams, then you're given a proposition, for example, that the death penalty is never warranted. One side is assigned to be the affirmative, one side the negative. Then there is an hour, and almost always a, an hour, in between when these propositions are assigned and when the debate begins. Then, when the debate begins, you alternate speeches, starting with the affirmative until all four speakers have gone. For the most part, the speeches are interrupted, though it seems like there can be exceptions to that rule. Uh, and the expectation is that the audience the judges and the other debaters will all be taking notes uh, throughout and responding to individual points brought up in the preceding speeches. And then at the end, a judge or panel of judges declares a winner. And in general, this judgment should be based on the, the 
quality and convincingness of the arguments presented. That's it. Cool. There are variations between different formats, um, but that's the general idea. Awesome. Um, and so this is the format. And then there's a bunch of sort of themes that you that you investigate throughout here. So one of them is is topic. And one of the things that stood out to me uh, was that you mentioned just how tricky it is to come up with a good proposition and just how sensitive they are to specific wording. So uh, a, uh, a, an example that you give is the proposition that we believe people work too hard. And so, okay, that sentiment seems worth debating, but it's obviously too broad. So then that might become that we believe a culture that celebrates overwork does more harm than good. But then it's like, okay, well, that framing kind of lends itself toward a debate about values, and that will steer the debaters away from concrete arguments about policy. But then, you know, if you're trying to find the core of the problem, you might, you know, try that we believe capitalism is broken. But then, okay, we'll debate now about everything. And then, uh, you know, you kind of bring it together and say, well, if you have a little bit of inspiration, you can kind of tie all this together. And your example of the right balance is that we should implement a four-hour work week. Mm-hmm. So one of the implications, four day, four day yeah, thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. I think four hour work week is a, a different <laughs> concept. Right. I think that was a different author who. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, so one uh, one of the implications here is that part of winning or even conducting a debate is about figuring out what the debate is actually about. So can you say a little bit about what that what that means? I think there's two things here. One is. I wanted to talk people through that um, that evolutionary process of how topics come to be because you know in the grand scheme of things the four or five topic you just topics you just outlined Cody are kind of similar right but um, and you would probably raise some similar arguments across them but the very subtle nuances of each topic they change what arguments come to the fore, which are rewarded, the kind of frame of mind people are in. And I just wanted to use that as an illustration because I think we often get into disagreements in our day-to-day lives without even thinking about what we're disagreeing about. And it's only in retrospect, we're kind of like, what was that about again? And, and, often there's like five or six different answers to the question. And and that's when you know you've probably strayed a little bit. And so one of the principles of the book is every disagreement should begin with an act of agreement or some measure of agreement. And one of them is what we're actually disagreeing about. And I just wanted to show the the power in some ways of framing um, because the way in which we articulate the nature of our dispute determines in significant part what the dis- how the dispute is going to go and what it's going to comprise of. The other thing that I, I go through in that chapter is, and the reason why it's not as simple as what I've just said is because there are usually many different kinds of disagreement within one disagreement. Um, And the example I give is about disagreeing about straightforward 
debate about what we should do with the kids, a kind of a prescriptive debate, but it probably has embedded in it disagreements of fact, like what the local public schools are like, whether they have good sporting facilities, how many classrooms they have, what the teacher-student ratio is, and so on. And it probably has normative disagreements embedded in it as well about what your obligation as a citizen is, as a neighbor is, um, and as a parent is as well. And just being able to distinguish between the different kinds of topics, but also to the first point, recognizing that framing really matters and, and determines the kind of conversation we're going to have. Um, that seemed a kind of a fitting place to start the book. So a good disagreement is based initially in agreement. That, that yeah, that I really like that a lot. And I think, you know, kind of the, the mode that we often find ourselves in, even just in casual conversations in everyday life, is that we rush straight to, well, here's the conclusion I've come to. Here's the conclusion you've come to. This seems to be at odds. But then there's layers and this whole pyramid of ideology, belief, propositions, assumptions about, you know, uh, you know normative things, what, what, what should be the case, uh, facts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to make progress in a casual debate is because you go straight to the difference in conclusion without trying to build a set of things, of, of, of a core of agreement to build on, the least of which should be what exactly is being disagreed about. Yeah, I like that. And um I mean, there's two things there, right? One is about the agreement piece, which is, which is not as foreign as as um, as it might sound. Like there are subtle layers of agreement in everyday conversation. Like we're not going to cuss each other out, you know. In hopefully, in most situations, and um, and so it's about kind of articulating what those areas of agreement are and should be, and and the ways in which you know, new new rules, like one in debating is we take it in turns. So I get a go, you get a go, but then I get to respond. So I don't have to interrupt mid-sentence because I know my turn is coming. That kind of putting in that level of artifice, I think, can actually be quite useful. Um, so there's an agreement piece. And then the other thing that you said that I like is this is not a sophisticated philosophy at all, but it is just saying, one thing at a time so we don't there are you know as you say superstructures of ideology and whatever hanging above our disagreements but i think our disagreements tend to go a lot better when we don't view them as proxies for prosecuting some bigger case against liberals or against conservatives or or um you know, when we when we view a very particular dispute that we have with a family member or a colleague or someone uh, in the public square as like a proxy battle in a broader culture war, as opposed to a conversation in and of itself. Um, so just the way that we spoke before about viewing democracy as a series of particular interactions. I would also want to say we want to treat 
broad disputes that we have as a series of individual conversations and disagreements and not merely a kind of a, a, a way of, um, of fighting that bigger fight. Right. So what you're saying there is that we are often guilty of the, oh, uh, that capitalism is broken prompt, right? Of, of, of framing things in a way that requires us to solve all of society, all of, you know, the monumental ideological conflicts all at once, rather than, than breaking it down to a particular topic uh, that's under debate. That seems, I think that's it. Yeah, that's it exactly. And I think it's part of the reason why you know our, our conversations often feel a bit unsatisfying. Um, and in addition to all the other things I feel about the state of a lot of public disagreements, one is it's just not filling. It's sort of undernourishing. And I think the reason is um, in trying to talk about everything, we we end up not connecting at all. Um, and you know, that's the point of conversation is to, to connect, to make contact and to do that. I think you, um, you have to sometimes start smaller. Cody here. I'll make this quick. I really appreciate listening to the show. And right now, the number one thing you can do to support it is to sign up for my Substack newsletter at againsthabit.com. It'll take you 15 seconds which is about how long this interlude will run for. So please consider subscribing. And now, back to the show. As you said, this is basically your opening technical chapter. Um, and already I found myself, uh, you know, I, I sort of read your book within the back of my mind, always asking this question, how does what we're learning about debate generalize to conversations at large in society? Uh, and this was already a topic where I find myself wondering, how does this generalize? Because it seems that this is not something that we are naturally good at, that it actually is extremely difficult to get clear on what you're really arguing about. And more than that, it's a step we're often more than happy to omit. So I don't know, like, do you have a, a prescription or a way of thinking about what it would mean to overcome this obstacle in a more informal setting when you don't have the strictures of formal debate in place. For sure. And that that's the, the big challenge um, that I set myself in writing the book is um, trying to make these principles applicable to real life. And um, I think the first way in which we can apply some of these lessons is, as I say, prior to launching into the disagreement, you can have a conversation, take probably three to five minutes to just say, can we be clear on what it is we're arguing about? Right, And you can ask it as a question and you can kind of problem solve together to say, is the main thing you're worried here about here the the quality of the schools in our neighborhood is it is your main concern here about what you think we're kind of obligated to do as members of this community is actually your concern about where we send the kids rooted mostly in your beliefs about what our kids are like what their dispositions are like what their likes and dislikes are and so there can be this kind of process of um negotiation right but, and that's a strong word for what we do every day, which is we try and figure out what what our partners and our friends and our colleagues are thinking and try and 
get alignment. Um, but I think the 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 easiest way to start putting these principles into practice in day-to-day life is in seeking to find that level of agreement. And hopefully some of the vocabulary that I provide in the book of what's a prescriptive debate versus a descriptive debate, so on, can help us do that spotting. But I think um, it's fair to say that debate unearths some new principles of conversation, but more often it puts in very sharp relief the kind of practices that we engage in in our best conversations. Um, so trying to isolate those and 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 explain how we put it into practice um, can, I think, be useful. This is a bit of a technical question about debates, uh, but I want to ask about scoring systems. So the scoring system that you describe in your form of debate is, you know, there's a panel of judges who give their opinion on which side was more convincing. But another way that I've seen it done is that there is an audience, and before the debate, the audience weighs in on their current belief about the proposition. Then the debate happens, and then afterward, there is another measure of audience belief. And then whichever direction the audience, on average, was swayed, wins the debate. So this, like, to me, seems to make a lot more sense, and I'm wondering if there's any particular reason why this form of scoring is less common or what its drawbacks might be. That's very interesting. So that's the format that Intelligence Squared uses, for example. Um, and I was just talking with them about it. Um, one, one, one problem that I've seen, um, uh, and it's not a dispositive reason against using it. In fact, I think there is a lot of advantages to this approach. Um, but one, one problem arises when that first vote of people's priors are overwhelmingly in favor of one proposition over something else, right? And so there's um, less room for one of the sides to move in that instance. Um, uh, and 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 the and the because you're calculating the delta, it can be off um, a little bit based on. So it, it tends to work best when that first vote is something like fifty-fifty. Um, the reason why I don't think it's used in competitive debate um, is because there is an element of the activity which is more pedagogical. Um, so the scoring system that is used um, roughly looks at people's manner, which is their way of presenting the material, matter, which is what they say. And even that separation of those two things gives you a sense of what debate is about, that it says being in possession of good arguments is one thing. The ability to effectively make those arguments is another skill. Um, and the third is method and, and how you respond to the other team um, and the strategy that you use. So I think probably the, um, the reason why that is used in competitive debate as opposed to the change in, in, in mind or perception um, is because we want to teach people some skills and develop a kind of an artistry around the practice. Um, and maybe just the last thing that I would say is um, uh, this is a different way of kind of judging people's performance, but 
I think the aspiration in debate is for the adjudicator to start as close to neutral as possible. So it's um, obviously one way in which you can kind of measure the persuasiveness of a team is in the aggregate and how many minds that it changed. But the way in which competitive debate does it is to say, um, judges, you have to kind of set aside your subjective beliefs about this topic and and try and do it on the merits of the argument as presented. Um, I think there are drawbacks and advantages to each approach, um, but I think those are the reasons why it's used in competitive debate. That makes sense. So you're saying essentially two things. One is that if there's a, a lopsided initial measurement, then you're kind of in danger of regression to the mean, where just like the natural thing to happen is you get closer to 50-50 rather than going from 90-10 to 95-5. And then the second thing, the complexity of the rubric, the the audience measurement, the temperature measurement is a unidimensional kind of blunt measurement, whereas the judge's rubric has all sorts of sophisticated things that in the ideal platonic case your uh you know d d debate would uh would, would would bring out from the the debaters okay um another thing that you mentioned that i was really drawn to was about the certainty of belief and so basically you described how that prep period the hour between being assigned your position and actually having to begin the debate is, as you said, oddly liberating. And, you know, the, the kind of thing here is that you're told what position you're going to be defending. And because your position has been solidified beforehand, you don't have to worry about figuring out what you really believe. You can just sort of go with it. And you write that this makes possible to feel at ease flirting with ideas. That, quote, you are um, uh, unencumbered by expectations of consistency or deep conviction. And so this, this seems to me like a crucial dynamic. So on the one hand, it is kind of strange because in a debate, there is, in effect, a 0% probability of flipping the other side to your position. The beliefs of the people arguing, those are fixed. Um, it's only the audience beliefs, or like we're talking about the judges' beliefs, quote-unquote, that can be altered. And so debates are performative in this respect. Then on the other hand, it's importantly differently it's importantly different from another kind of real life debate, one where where you're trying to form your own opinion sort of in an, on an ad hoc basis as you're defending it, or at least you're open to modifying it while you're in the midst of arguing. So can you draw out this dynamic a little bit more for me? Yeah. And it's wonderful that you um that you described it the way you did. And, and it's precisely how I think about it is, it is a performance, it's a game, it's play, it's role play. And you're right that the both sides' views are sort of fixed for the duration of the debate, but it's certainly not fixed, obviously, for the duration of their life. In fact, it's only fixed for two hours. And afterwards, I think people often leave the debate room having moved a little bit in their thinking, um, having seen, oh, shoot, I, I couldn't come up with an, a bit of rebuttal to that opposing argument, for example. So 
you're right that it's fixed for the duration of the debate, but I'll just point out that's a very short period relative to um, uh, the rest of your life, hopefully. Um, the, the play part feels very important to me because there's so much of life where we're very encumbered by our egos and the maintenance of our egos. And nowadays, it's all kind of branding. <laughs> and your name follows you around. And all the activity that you do online is um, feels very visible. And, 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 you know, like I talk to cousins, and they're like nine years old, and they, they know about on brand off brand. <laughs> and uh, so there's this kind of expectation of consistency of of um, acting as your own PR manager and um, and brand builder, um, which I think is generally a bit much for most of us to bear. But it's especially a problem when it comes to um, to figuring out what we believe because it it raises the cost of changing your beliefs a lot. Um, it it makes it seem really high stakes and and it's something I really wrestled with in the book is you know to what extent we want sincerity um, to be the defining virtue of our public conversation and of course it has to have a role and of course we want to have people we want to feel like the person across from us believes what they're saying, but it's not the only thing that we need in a rich public conversation. We also need flexibility, adaptability, a kind of an empathy that comes with putting yourselves in other shoes. Um, and maybe even ambivalence and a tolerance for searching um, and people just being sure. Um, so you test it out. Um, I don't think there is a lot of room for testing things out right now um, because, yeah, now I'm just talking about my cousins, but, you know, you, you expect people to be very, to be fully formed almost very early. And, um, and, and it's especially true as we go into adult age, you know, you're meant to have figured it all out. Um, and most of us haven't. And, and debate is a kind of a, a room or a lab where you can set aside um, just the weight of your ego and your identity for a sec and, and, and try something new. This seems really important. So uh, another, another way to phrase what you just said is that good disagreements should be fun and not antagonistic. There should be an element of, you know, playing the game, uh, not life and death ideology wars, but hey, let's figure out how to do the best of the side that I'm defending. You do the same thing on yours, and we'll see where that takes us. And if one of one of us wins, one of us loses, well, that's okay. There'll be another debate, you know, next Friday. Um, that seems really crucial to the dynamic here and why it works and why it's constructive and something that, in general, is really easy to miss out on when it's a sort of real life in the wild, uh, more antagonistic debate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's right. Um, but as you say, it is a reality. 
there is going to be another debate next Friday. Um, you know, it might not be with the particular, you know, when it when it's family and colleagues, it is in fact with the particular person. Um, but when, even when it's online or or just a kind of a, a person you come across in a political context or in a social context, every time we argue, we are legislating in some ways the rules of engagement for future interactions. So um, again, it's not a feature of debate so much as something that debate brings out and highlights about our world, which is we do have to keep talking to one another. Um, and that 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 element of playfulness and you know i i i don't have the expertise um to um or the or the knowledge here um but there is a kind of a, a broader rethinking that i think might be required of how we how we treat words like game and play um not as um the stuff of of infants or children but as a kind of a tool that we've come up with as a sphere of activity that um, that we should engage in with adults uh, as adults as well. Um, not only because it's fun, but because it's useful. Um, and I, I think, I, I think a part of the development of games um, must be in, entwined in some view of pedagogy, of learning, of education. And so, um, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that debate as game uh, gives us one way of thinking about a continuing education. Okay, so I want to start to be a little bit more directed about generalizing some of these principles from the formal debate setting to society at large. And I guess the kind of main thing that I want to do there is that, so your book is making this argument that debate is a good model for how to do that, or at least a useful model. And I think that's certainly uh, something that a lot of us can get on board with. But I want to start kind of unpacking that, pressing at a couple locations, and maybe trying to provide some alternative models to compare with. So the general concern that I have is that the formal debate works because it's adheres to a very specific, highly standardized format. And if it were to deviate from that format, it would break down. So if a formal debate, you know, goes according to the format that we've described, then, you know, arguments in society are more like, okay, you guys go up on stage, figure out what you disagree about, and then tell the other side why they're wrong. And of course, there's also a version of this where the debate isn't even happening face-to-face, -face, but online which more closely resembles a version of dispute resolution based on a brawl rather than a debate. But uh, yeah, so how do you deal with that kind of concern? Yeah, it's a real concern. Um, and, and, um, and maybe so far we've talked about the merits of competitive debate as an activity and as the format. Um, but... I think the, to be clear about the argument of the book is less that we should just debate all the time or that competitive debate is the ideal form of dispute resolution. It's that there are skills and there are lessons and there are tactics and strategies sharpened in competitive debate that we can apply to everyday life. So even when we are having just a regular argument, being able to apply the knowledge of what an argument actually comprises of, what it needs to do, 
um, applying some of those strategies of putting yourself in the other person's shoes and coming up with arguments from their perspective. I think those things can be additive um, to our day-to-day discussions. They can help us make our point better. They can help the other person feel like they're being heard. Um, and they can make our arguments on the whole go a lot better. So the argument is less about we should debate, though uh, I think we should. Um, it's about what are the lessons that debate can teach us that we can apply to everyday life. And the part of the um, the the book that deals with structure um, is, you know, it. I think you can actually be a little bit a la carte about it. Um, so, for example, if you just say, let's just lay down as one of the ground rules that when I'm talking, you're not talking. Or let's say, let's lay down as a general principle, um, we agree to have equal time in this exchange, right? Or we agree to take turns so you don't have to interrupt while I'm talking. So, you know, those elements of structure are actually not terribly onerous. Um, and they're easily navigable by children, you know? And so uh, a part of the artifice of it, the structure of it, is I don't think you need to take all of it in order for it to work. Um, But I think in as much as it feels like a bit of a deviation from the way in which our conversations go, I don't think that's such a bad thing. Um, And there's this idea that conversation should be free flowing and natural and, and, and freewheeling. And, and there's something to that, but conversation at its core is a kind of an interaction. Um, and sometimes being very deliberate about that interaction can be useful. Like if you're going on a date, you want to do some planning (laughs) and you want to, leave things up for spontaneity. There's probably a, a, a balance to be struck, but this idea that conversation should just be, we, we, we freewheel our way into it and out of it. Um, I think we see that it doesn't really work. Those are all good points. Thanks for clarifying the argument there. So one thing that I want to pick up on in that line of inquiry is something from psychology actually, which is that one insight that's becoming increasingly clear from psychological research is that facts don't change minds. So we kind of have this idea that people form their beliefs based on some rational evaluation and that if we toggle the right kind of, you know, logical knobs and controls, then we might alter those beliefs. But it turns out that people's beliefs and positions on the really big core topics, the kind that we're most likely to find ourselves debating, are formed a lot more based on social and emotional considerations. People don't believe things because they're correct. They think things are correct because believing those things feels right to them. And until you can destabilize that feeling in some way or make them question or or reconsider it, then people will always be able to explain away a rational counter arguments to their position. So what do you make of that sort of, uh, that sort of idea? It's very interesting. And um, obviously, 
you know, I have to defer to your expertise on the on the psychology aspect of it. Um, here's what I see. Um, so, you know, there's that Aristotle's idea of the three pillars of rhetoric, and it often gets repeated. One is pathos, which is kind of an emotional appeal. Um, logos, which is logic, rationality, the strength of the arguments, the facts. Um, and, and I kind of understood those two as being important. And in the book, I deal with them kind of explicitly. But the third one, which I had given short shrift to, which I didn't really get, uh, or I thought was antiquated, actually, um, is ethos, which is the personality of the speaker. Um, and I thought it was kind of antiquated because I'm sure it's rooted in ideas of social standing, which um, which is obviously still kind of prevalent, but has a different valence, um, obviously, when you're in Aristotle's age. Um, but in actually, you know, as I look at my book more and more, I see the importance of that third piece um, because an early version of this book read more like a kind of a manual or it was a sort of a voice of God, impersonal, um, typical kind of nonfiction sort of voice. And, and in the end, it, it actually reads more like a memoir. Um, and the reason for that was I, I just wasn't a good enough writer actually to get at an audience who who probably hadn't heard of much about debating and and me who has spent many years in the activity i i just couldn't write across that gap i just wasn't good enough to do it and so i needed to find a bridge and the conclusion i came to um is you know, I know someone else who didn't know very much about debate, but learned, and that was me. And so a lot of the lessons that I put forward, a lot of the ideas that I put forward that we've been describing a little bit more abstractly in our conversation is very embodied. Um, and I do believe, going back to a theme that we've been circling around, that particular interactions, particular lives, can give us a, a, a vantage point from which we can grasp the universals. You know, we can see something deeper, um, something more true. And so um, when it comes to kind of persuading people, um, I sort of agree with your, 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 your framing intuitively um, that you need something more than facts or knowledge or, or arguments. Um, you need to relate to the other person. And part of that is listening to them. I think we've talked about that and, and making them feel like you kind of know where they're coming from and where they're starting. But another part of it, I think, is the vulnerability of saying, here's where I'm coming from. Um, and I don't have a, a view of everything because I can't. 
um, my viewpoint literally moves with me when I get on a plane. Um, but I think I've seen some things and being able to say, here are my ideas. What do you think about them? That's a very scary thing. But um, in as much as we're able to change minds, uh, I think that kind of self-disclosure and that willingness to connect with the other person is a kind of a precondition. So first of all, I'll say I really like the structure of the book. I thought the parallel stories between your own uh, narrative and the larger points that you wanted to make, that was awesome. I've always been super fascinated with books that have that kind of uh, narratological structure, and I thought you did a really nice job of it. Uh, so I'm in agreement on that. And I know you're kind of, you know, forming your own counter argument to the idea that ethos is actually, you know, kind of uh, old school as a concept. But I want to express strong disagreements with with that, because I actually think that ethos is more important than ever and is actually the defining rhetorical pillar of our age. Right. This is the whole connection with identity and ideas right now in 2022 more than ever we believe that who you are is inextricable from the point that you're making and we as readers and listeners and participants in society are constantly evaluating who is presenting me with this information is it a white person telling me about the experience of a black person uh if so, then I'm going to be highly skeptical of that. And those are the kind of things that we are more sensitive to in this age than I think we probably ever have been before. And I actually think that it's kind of trained us in this subliminal way to prioritize ethos over everything else in this kind of outsized way. I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection, um, but I think I'm persuaded by that. Yep, I, that sounds that sounds that sounds plausible. I don't know if ever because there, you know the <laughs> sure. the reference I was making to in in Aristotle's time is like some people being allowed to speak <laughs> and other people being you know enslaved or 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 or, or totally silenced. But um, but I'm 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 persuaded that um that that ethos has made a big comeback in that way. Oh yeah, ethos very hot right now. Um, okay, so it, to kind of bring things together, I guess I want to maybe be, you know, more explicit about a alternative model to debate besides the sort of more, you know, formally established ones like negotiation, mediation, that sort of stuff that, that you mentioned earlier. Um, that's kind of based on my, you know, psychological proposition. Yeah, that's, that'd be great. Uh, and I guess I want to call it the anti-debate. And so the kind of idea here is that instead of trying to convince others of your own position and to be judged on how effectively you've done that, it's about actively working towards an understanding of theirs. So your side would win uh, not by most forcefully articulating your own opinion and sort of toppling the other side's position, but by coming to the best, most sympathetic rendering of the opposition side. So I know that probably doesn't sound like much fun from a competitive point of view, uh, but it, it, that kind of seems like one of the things that we'd really want to do if our goal is to have a constructive rather than confrontational dialogue about real issues. 
for example, uh, I'm, I'm imagining kind of higher stakes conflict negotiations between uh, Israelis and Palestine, uh, Palestinians, which I've read about, uh, for example, with uh, uh, anthropologist uh, Scott Atron or, you know, just Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. But you can kind of imagine that you'll never really get anywhere by having each side continue to reify its own position and points of contention with the opposition. And one of the key things holding back that kind of interaction seems like a nuanced understanding of the other side. So maybe something along the lines of this this anti-debate trying to articulate the other side's position for them in a way that makes sense to you uh, kind of has some traction on some of the, 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 the things that we think are really important here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot, and um, and I'm sure it's rooted in um, in something something quite deep, you know, from from the reading that you've been doing on psychology and 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 those fields. It it's it sparks sort of three ideas for me. One is um, though the point of the book is to verse people in debate and give them an access to this set of toolkits. Um, I don't think it's the only set of toolkit. It's the only toolkit that you need. And um, I think probably a fuller version of what I believe is we all have to be multilingual in different forms of conversation. So some situations call for debate, other situations call for negotiation, other situations call for, um, as you say, Cody, a kind of a faithful rendering of what the other side believes. And I think having those tools um, and different modes of conversation available to us um, will be to our benefit. The second is there is some element um, to which, and it's not complete, but there is some element to which that kind of faithful rendering of the other side's view is quite consonant with debate. And the reason for that is both because the adjudicator is kind of keeping notes and knows if you're not receiving the other person's argument in good faith or if you're misrepresenting it, but maybe more importantly, because of the kind of turn-taking that I've described before, where it's, it's in your best interests to not only respond to the most faithful version of the other side's argument, but maybe even a stronger version of the other side's case, because you know there's another person coming behind you who's going to improve their case in response to your feedback. So you're going to be a step behind, right, after that evolution or step change has happened. So there is an extent to which I think there is a bit of consonance. And then maybe for the divergence, and this is something, again, where I'm, I'm thinking, still thinking about something, something um, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on at some point is um, just the way you hedged it in, the, in framing the question about it may not be the most exciting thing. Um, that is something I wrestle with. Um, and I think one of the things debate is, is it's fun, it's playful, it's a game. It's also competitive. And I didn't want the book to read like, in order for us to have civil disagreements, we have to be like angels sitting around listening and, 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 and being kind of saintly towards one another. Um, I think a, a, a mode or a theory of human engagement that doesn't account for those elements of performance and contest and, and, and discovery and all of these quite mercurial elements 
um, elements that have the capacity to do harm as they do to benefit us. Um, that that seemed less interesting to me than one that looked at um, those things and and tried to tackle and head on. Those are all great points. Okay, Bo. So uh, I guess this is something that I was kind of wondering throughout the book, kind of in the back of my mind. How often did arguing one side or another in a formal debate change your position in real life? And can you give any examples of when that happened? I think for me, because I started debating at such a young age, there were often times when I had a debate before I even had a prior view. Um, and for example, you know, I wouldn't have had strong intuitions on um, euthanasia or right to die or strong intuitions on um, the ethics of eating meat or something like that. And, th- and, you know, and so I think the interesting experience that I've had is in arriving at conviction after having had a disagreement about it, which is often the, the inverse of, of the experience most people have. And I have found, dis, despite the anxiety of some debaters that this means you're kind of a mercenary and you don't have strong views, I've found that that kind of considering all perspectives is not antithetical to holding strong beliefs, um, but it does kind of lead to more textured. Sorry, something's just dropping here. Um, but it does lead to more kind of textured beliefs, and 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 you never arrive at a position thinking there's no other side. Um, so I, I mean, I've, I, I don't, you know, without saying what I believe about those particular issues. I think the place that I've come to um, is much enriched by the process of having a conversation about it, a a freewheeling discussion about it, um, one that accounted for both sides. All right, Bo, this has been a really fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Thanks so much, Cody. Learned learned a lot and I enjoyed it as well. So thanks very much. That was my conversation with Bo Seo. Thanks for listening. Bo's book is Good Arguments, available wherever you get your books. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at againsthabit.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Against Habit.